Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, we'll be interviewing Shaka King, the genius director of the critically acclaimed film, Judas and the Black Messiah. And one of the inspirations for that film and widow of the late chairman, Fred Hampton Jr., Mama Akua. Before we get to Mama Akua and Shaka, though, I wanted to talk about Miami Heat center Myers Leonard. In case you missed it while playing the video game Call of Duty, Leonard uh, called a fellow player an anti-Semitic slur. And to add insult to injury, he says in a written apology, he didn't know what the word meant at the time. So let's talk about trash apologies for a second. The first question for me is, if you didn't know what it meant when you used it, then why would you use it? I have a hard time believing that you didn't know it was offensive when you used it because, well, if you listen to it, it's clear he was just upset. And he used it in a way that people tend to use that term when they want to offend. And mind you, this is the same Myers Leonard who didn't kneel in solidarity during the national anthem with his black teammates because of, quote, patriotism. Now, look, I don't think it's a coincidence that the guy who equates kneeling for the national anthem as an affront to the American flag and the military is also the guy casually throwing out anti-Semitic slurs while playing a video game. And my hope is that folks who are rightly calling him out now connect the dots here between his bad politics on BLM and police violence with anti-Semitism. Because in my experience, all those bad politics often tend to reside in the same body. Myers Leonard is exhibit A, that being shitty in one regard often translated into other spaces. And I hope everyone who has the energy for him now had the energy for him last year when he wouldn't kneel with his black teammates in the wake of last summer's uprisings. And that's that on that. Now on to our interview with Mama Akua and Shaka King. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on Cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on Cars.com. Good morning and welcome to the Bukhari Sellers Podcast. Today is a great show. We have Mother Akua and Shaka King on the episode with us today. We're going to dig into it. We're going to talk about our history, what, what's going forward, and this amazing piece of art that they just put out. Uh, Shaka, I'm going to start with you. We start all of our listeners by, or all of our interviews by having our guests walk us through the arc of their careers. And I wanted to start the conversation with you. You've been on all sides of the camera as a director, writer, and producer. So the genius we saw in Judas and the Black Messiah didn't come out the blue. 
Walk us through the arc of your career from your first break in the film business to Judas and the Black Messiah. Yeah, that, would, that would take a long time to go in depth. I think the quickest summary is um, went to film school at NYU for graduate film at 27. I was there for about three years of classes and I took three years to make my thesis film, which was a feature titled Newlyweeds. I took it to Sundance in 2013, which is where I met Ryan Coogler. Uh, who was there with Fruitvale. That was probably the highlight of my, one of the highlights of my Sundance. My Sundance wasn't, the, wasn't a, I had fun there, but it wasn't the greatest in terms of, you know, the business side of things. You know, sold a movie to a terrible distributor. Uh, <laughs> and uh, basically, you know, it, it remained fairly unseen. And spent a few years, you know, between, not really a few years. I made the movie in 2013. I didn't, complete this film, complete shooting this film to, you know, the end of 2019. So almost seven years uh, between movies. And then in that time, I was making short films. Uh, I was directing some TV, uh, directed a few episodes of, you know, Random Acts of Fly. Well, actually one episode of Random Acts of Fly and it's some shrill for Hulu and high maintenance and was in the meantime, kind of content just making my little shorts uh and and you know carving out this tv directing career and then the lucas brothers came to me in 2016 with an idea for this movie and it was the first time a feature had come my way you know in that in that seven years that just i couldn't stop thinking about you know Mm. um and so we actually sat on the idea for about a year and then new year's eve going into 2017 I just woke up that morning and I was like, yo, this year we got to really, we got to really make, make this, you know, really try to do, make this movie. And I called them that, that morning and they, you know, they agreed And New Year's Day, 2017. I was just like, I was on it, you know. Mother Akua, uh, for our listeners who may be less familiar with who Chairman Fred Hampton was, who was Chairman Fred Hampton and why do you think his life, his legacy and his activism have all endured and even more importantly, stood the test of time. Well, let me say this. The legacy of the uh, the history and the Black Panther Party stands to this day. That organization stands out in the annals of history, and much of the teachings apply today as they did back in the 60s. Uh, Chairman Fred Hampton was the deputy chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. He had uh, grown up being an activist, if you will, fighting for a swimming pool where Black children could go to to the swimming pool out in Maywood. And uh, people have come to the Hampton House. that We have a whole project of Save and Maintain, uh, the Hampton House that Chairman Fred grew up in. Uh, People have come to the Hampton House with stories of how they were demonstrating uh, at the police department and the police threw a tear gas uh, Mm -hmm. uh, canister out there. Chairman Fred picked it up and threw it back in the police station. And he had a group of people he was out there demonstrating, uh, made signs out of cardboard and and tree branches, tree sticks, you know, demonstrating uh, at the police department because they didn't have any recreational facilities. They, They did in the white suburbs and white communities. So he has a rich history. He was drafted uh, to come into the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party as the deputy chairman. 
one thing that everybody knows about Chairman Fred is that he was a powerful speaker. Mm -hmm. He was a powerful, brilliant organizer. And the thing that stands out the most is that he was one and the same with the people. He would be out in the community. He was not just the armchair revolutionary, as we said, <laughs> that uh, intellectualized. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Read books and talked from a podium. He would get out in the street with the people. He'd be at the breakfast programs. He would be out in the morning when we would be drilling at four or five in the morning before we started selling our newspapers or going to the breakfast programs or doing and doing our cadre work. So four or five in the morning, he would be out there hyping us up, you know, doing various chants, all power to the people, power to the black community. And, you know, we'd be marching and we, we'd be so high off the people, just so astronomically juiced up. <laughs> that we would go out, you know what I'm saying, and, and do the work like it was nothing. And it was anybody to tell you, it's freezing cold in Chicago in the wintertime. And we would be out there in the schoolyard drilling four or five in the morning before we started our work of selling the newspapers at a rush hour stops. So, I mean, I, my father was a member of SNCC. He, he was a part of that small fledgling organization in the Deep South. And he went, you know, he led the search mission looking for Goodman, Schroeder, and Cheney in, in Philadelphia, Mississippi. And I'm very familiar with the sacrifices that were made during that time. But my next question to you is, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the role of Black women in this movie and the Black Panther Party. Talk about the central role that women like you played in running the Black Panther Party. I always think about from, you know, being a child of SNCC, I always think about the Ella Bakers and Judy Richardson's. But talk about the Black Panther Party and why it was so important for the role of Black women to be captured in this film. Well, I think a lot of uh, bad press has been, and everybody has a story. There are a million and one stories about the Black Panther Party, but the Black Panther Party was the first organization to take on what had become known as male chauvinism uh, in the United States. Women were in leadership positions all across the country, and uh, I've heard people tell me that it was mostly women in the Black Panther Party. That was not the case in the Illinois chapter or in, <laughs> it was mostly men. The Illinois chapter or other branches and chapters that, you know, I'm I'm aware of. I'm not saying it didn't happen, but, you know, it was majority men until after the assassination and the massive lockups that were part of the COINTELPRO where uh, men were more so, but women and children also were shot down, uh, arrested, and given uh, prison and, and jail time, which changed the uh, face of the Black Panther Party a great deal. I worked on the finance committee uh, doing fundraising raising under the leadership of Lieutenant uh, Barbara Sankey. That was on in terms of Chicago branch. We had office at 2350 West Madison Street, and we lived at 2337 West Monroe, now known as Chairman Fred Hampton Way. When Chairman Fred told me to go find an apartment where he could walk to the office, you know, so that was a vacant lot that all he had to do was go across the street and walk, walk through the breaking, vacant lot to the office. And in that vacant lot, a lot of the homeless people lived in, in abandoned cars and, and such. And we were warmly received by them. And we would uh, also uh, they would participate in our free food and clothing uh, giveaways that the Black Panther Party did, along with many other programs throughout its uh, 
leadership as the vanguard of the revolutionary struggle. I always say the Black Panther Party was the highest point of my life because I learned so much. I did so much. I came to the uh, start coming to political education classes uh, while a student at uh, Wright City College. And the person that was teaching the class came up to me and said, what you learned in school? I had my English lit book, so I'm going to go home and cram. I ain't learned nothing in school. I've been playing beer with all day. And uh, that's a card game. I know a beer with. <laughs> I'm going to go home and cram, right? And so I had brought my English lit book to the PE class, and the person teaching the class said, uh, came over, singled me out, right? I'm late to the class. He starts flipping my book that was sitting on the side of me and said, so what did you learn in school today? And I hadn't learned nothing. And I was looking all stupid, and I didn't say nothing. I was really pissed off and that he singled me out. There's a bunch of people in there. And uh, he said, that's the very reason we're going to, tear down all of these schools. Our people not learning shit up in there. So I said, these Negroes is crazy. I'm not coming back. They'll never see me again. And uh, so I came back and you do a little work and a little work, a little more work. And it's always something to do. And before you know it, you are a thousand percent involved in the work, you know, and trying to do more as much as humanly possible night and day. That's a hell of a story. I want to, I'm going to play the actual trailer right here. Repeat after me. Looking at 18 months for the stolen car, five years for impersonating a federal officer, or you can go home. The Black Panthers are forming a rainbow coalition of oppressed brothers and sisters of every color. Their aim is to sow hatred and inspire terror. I will learn all that I can. I will learn. These ain't no terrorists. You can murder a liberator, but you can't murder a liberation. You can murder a revolutionary, but you can't murder a revolution. And you can murder a freedom fighter, but you can't murder a freedom. And Shaka, why did you decide to make this film? And just give us the Cliff Notes versions about what is Judas and the Black Messiah about. Sure. You know, the movie, it was pitched to me uh, and I, and I, as you know, a movie about Fred Hampton and William O'Neill, uh, William O'Neill being the FBI informant who uh, infiltrated the party uh, at 17 years old and uh, drugged Fred Hampton the night before he was assassinated. Let me ask well you this, let me ask you this question real quick before, before you sure. get too far along. Why did you decide to focus on the life of William O'Neill so much in the film? That stuck out to me. And so I wanted to, so listeners could could understand your thinking because it was a there were a lot of themes and lines around Fred Hampton. That was a hell of a one to pick out and a hell of a one to show. It was brilliant. You know, it was baked into the pitch to start with, you know. Um, and for me, there were two reasons to do it that way. One was the fact that it was the only way you could get a movie about Fred Hampton or his politics made 
mm-hmm. you know, within a studio system. And when you're talking about making a movie about Chairman Fred Hampton in the Illinois chapter, you need a certain scale. You need a certain scope. You can't make that movie for $5 million. So the only way that you can make that film is to make it within a major Hollywood studio. And the reason why I think you would have had a difficult time making a traditional Fred Hampton biopic at a major studio was that, A, he didn't have the name recognition of Hollywood. I mean, there was the Rosa Parks biopic. There's the Louis Armstrong biopic. There's the Duane and Joe Louis biopic. And so I understood that, as well as the fact that, you know, I think you have a difficult time finding a studio super gung-ho about making a movie about, you know, a Black Marxist revolutionary who was assassinated by the U.S. government at 21 years old, you know? Um, And so it was clear to me that that was the right vessel the only vessel, quite frankly, to present this movie to the public. In addition to that, if you couch it in genre, right, if you make it an undercover crime movie, then in a lot of ways, you can get it to a, a, a vast array of people who might not necessarily be interested in watching this history. If you watch our first trailer, that looks like a fucking gangster movie. You know yes. what I mean? <laughs> and, 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 and people will go watch that in a heartbeat. You know, and so that was like, okay, this is a great idea. So then you you have that idea, but then you have to sort of think about, all right, well, this is a political movie, right? Like the inspirations for this film cinematically, first one was Battle of Algiers. And I wish I'd seen Z before I I made the movie, because if I'd seen Z before I'd made the movie, it would have blown my mind because I I saw it afterward. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is like the, the touchstone, you know? And you know, the thing about this structure that I think allowed us to make, you know, to tap into some of these themes that you're alluding to is the fact that the, the way that you want to really frame Chairman Fred Hampton and his ideology is to not just show who he was, but show who he wasn't. And William O'Neill is the literal polar opposite of Fred Hampton, complete opposite from you're talking about a coward. You're talking about one of the bravest people ever walk the face of the earth. You're talking about a capitalist, someone who operates within a very capitalist culture. You're talking about a, a Marxist in Fred Hampton. So this was an opportunity to really contrast two very, you know, powerful ideologies and present them to the, you know, to the world in this like kind of piece of pop culture, you know. You brought up something in your in your answer real quick. I want to just dig a little deeper on that. Talk about how difficult it was to get this project greenlit. And let's, I mean, talk candidly about how racist some of the responses were to this film from Hollywood Studios, despite having an all-star lineup of actors teed up and half the production budget already on board and having Ryan Coogler being the force behind the film. I'm pretty certain that this still was. I want people to fully understand the gravity of what you pulled off. This still was a difficult film to make. It was. I mean, the truth of the matter is, is that we got, we were fortunate that the the one studio that did want to partner with us, you know, is, is Warner Brothers, which is, you know, it's like the Yankees of the studios, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know, but, but we did take it everywhere and, you know, folks, they were interested in the material. They were interested in the package, but none of them wanted to make the movie for the price point that you, the only price point you can make a movie at. We didn't make this movie for $90 million, $60 million, you know, which is what 
generally speaking, if you're making a movie of this scope, period film, you kind of acquire a budget like that. So we weren't, and we, and we weren't even asking nearly that much. But nevertheless, you know, our film was undervalued, you know, and, and I remember one interaction with, you know, a studio exec, and I've, I've told this story a million times now, where, you know, he was very interested in the film, had expressed a real passion for it. And previously in a meeting we'd had with him, he talked about, it was the weekend that Black Klansman was opening. And uh, he said it was a bomb. And we were all in the room like, we, I don't think so. Like, it, one can, the trailer looks great. Like, everybody's saying it's, it's, everybody I know is going to see it in the next three days. You're the only person here saying it's going to tank. And he was like, well, we crunched the numbers. You know, we, we, we ran it through our algorithm and it's going to tank. And so later when he told us that, you know, he could only offer us, you know, this small amount of money to make this movie and that he justified that based upon his team crunching the numbers and using the algorithm. I was like, well, your algorithm was wrong. And you said you learned it was wrong. How many, how many Negroes in your, how many Negroes in your algorithm is what I want to know. You know, it was like, (laughs) I was like, I, I, so I don't understand how you, that, that person who, who created that algorithm should be either fired or the algorithm should be adjusted. You know, if, if you're talking about you all operate within a capitalist framework, you know what I mean? And so, as I've said in the past, like, that's when I learned that, you know, even the, even the math in Hollywood is racist, you know, because it's like, you, it, it, and, it's, and it's, not, it's not in your face, it's not outward, you know what I mean? Everybody is incredibly, you know, saying the right things and hashtagging BLM and everybody's incredibly <laughs> liberal, but, but, you know, you just, it's just, you're quietly worth less. Your work is quietly, you know, under, undervalued. So this is this is when I insert a, a random PSA on my show. This is why we have to have real conversations about accruing black wealth so we can develop black studios and we can make our own content more often. Mother Akua, talk about your role in advising the film, including the hands-on role that you played in advising Dominique Fishback, who played you in the film. Well, let me say, you said something earlier, this um, high example of art. Yes. I think you said that's the first time I heard it, and it was. It is. The movie is. And and it's a piece, it's a high level of art uh, based on real story. So this film is to get you to think about some things and see some other things. And you're not going to get everything in a, I say it's a two-hour movie because I get up and go and come back in because I can't sit through the whole movie. I get emotional. You know what I'm saying? I understand. I get emotional about it. And usually when I talk about it, I'm getting emotional about it. But this film, again, we had trouble with the, uh, from the point of view of of William O'Neill and informant. But let me say the end result was everybody participating and myself and especially kudos to Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. that was on point all the way through. And one point he was so sick, you know, from night and day, he said, oh, you got to come up here now. That's it. You know what I'm saying? And I went up there and I stayed a while and I would go back and forth. But Chairman Fred was there all the time. You know what I'm saying? And, And he talks about how he wakes up in the middle of the night Holland, cut, stop it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> different things like that. But uh, we've met 
at the Hampton House, uh, Daniel Shaka, uh, Ryan, and other people at the Hampton House that we have a whole campaign to uh, maintain and restore the childhood home that Chairman Fred uh, grew up in, where the FBI tapped his uh, parents' phone when he was 13, 14 years old. Yes. And uh, so we were uh, all sitting around the table and Chairman Fred started asking, why you want to play this role, this, that, and the other? And so they began a, a dialogue. And uh, me and Dominique, uh, we were talking and she said something, she's talking about spiritual something. And I said, well, what if our spirits don't connect? And she was kind of taken aback, you know, by it. And I told her, I say, after, you know, when I hugged her, I said, well, listen, you know, I had to give you a hard time, you know. And uh, <laughs> it with Daniel, I said, oh, I ain't worried about you. You got this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you got it. And he has shown he got that. But the choosing of the actors, I, I have to really take my hat off you know, to how that was done. Because, I mean, everybody was superb. I told um, the brother that played uh, uh, William O'Neill, I said, you did the damn thing, but I can't hug you, you know? (laughs) 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 When I was on set and I saw him come in the character, you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. I can't imagine seeing Lakeith in that that transformation there. You probably... you, every time you see him in a movie now, he's going to be Listen. William O'Neill to you. Listen, I said, I can't hug you, but you did <laughs> it, you know. And Daniel uh, Daniel and Monique captured the electricity that was there for me and Chairman and to see them, you know, uh, and the love radiating and the dis- political discussions was amazing. Uh, I was also impressed with uh, Dominique and Daniel when they went to the site, uh, chairman had asked this when we had a meeting at the Hampton House and said, I want y'all to Google the uh, worst neighborhood in Chicago. So they came up with an area in K-Town. This is about one or two in the morning. We have been meeting for hours, you know. So they go over there and it's an area where about 11 people had just got shot and killed. You know, sh- Chicago is known as Chirac. Supposedly the murder capital of of the U.S., you know what I'm saying? So they went over there, never having been to Chicago, as far as I know, and went out in the community at that time in the morning. And I I said, oh, this is something right here to take note of, because other people try to, you know, be Chairman Fred. They never walked even close to what Chairman Fred went through, what he saw, the actions that he did out in the community. Again, he wasn't an armchair revolutionary. He was a person that walked, talked, and did the work of a revolutionary, you know, and educated the people in that process through the survival programs and uh, through being in the community, even showing people how they can sell papers, you know? So, yeah. So Dominique did a magnificent job. I'm Amazing. so proud of her. I, I mean, yes. I, that every it seems like they took. I mean, I know actors always take their job personally, but it seems as if they had a heightened sense of awareness of what this film meant. So they brought their A plus game, and I hope that they received I mean, the, they benefits the, the benefits and the benefits and awards. Yes. Sign up to the Economist for in-depth, curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. 
you'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get you out of here, Shaka, I got one more question for you. Talk about the role of Ryan Coogler and and the role that he played in helping getting this film across the finish line. And then just personally, talk about the teaching moments you create in the movie regarding white allyship and what do you want allies to take from the movie? Well, the star of Ryan, I mean, you know, the movie doesn't exist without Ryan. And I think a lot of times when I say that people, they automatically assume I'm referring to the fact that Black Panther was a hit and this movie stands on the shoulders. But that's just one side of it. And, the, you know, Mama Cool can yes. attest to this side yes. as well. Man. It was his relationship with Chairman and his relationship with Mama Cool that got this movie, that got yes. that part. In fact, y'all should, you yes. should talk about it. You should talk about it. I love Ryan Coogan. <laughs> he is so... He's brilliant, but he's humble. He doesn't come in like he knows. He's open to what you have to say. So many people think they know Chairman Fred, but they don't know Dak about him. You know what I'm saying? Ryan Coogler was open to learn and to see and really feel our pain, things that we had issues about. And to this day, him and Chairman Fred are Ace, you know what I'm saying? Chairman Fred Jr. And he's such an amazing person. I can't say enough good things about him and how much I love and appreciate him. And this whole cadre of people, Shaka, Ryan, Charles, you know what I'm saying? They did such a magnificent job. Just even, how do you, how do you know to pick a Daniel Kaluuya to, uh, Mm-hmm. Play Chairman Fred. How do you know to pick a Dominique Fishback to play Deborah Johnson, the mm-hmm. O'Neill character? You know, all of this, you know, it was just amazing to see this uh, um, and see the development. Of course, Chairman Fred and myself, he met with the cast more than I did. I did a few times, but he stayed on it and constantly doing a political education process, letting them know different things, even different movements, who smoked, who held a cigarette this way. You know, all of this detailed stuff that made made it real. And I've gotten so many calls from 
women, you know, uh, Frederica Newton, the widow of uh, Minister Huey P. Newton, called me. I hate to put her business in the street, but called me crying when she saw that movie. And she said the love and tenderness just really touched her heart, you know, mm-hmm. between the, myself and chairman. But and also realizing that the Black Panther Party was not motivated by hate, but motivated by love for the people. That was first and foremost. So with saying about Ryan, Ryan Coogler, I mean, this was a dream team, if you will. And so I wanted you to hear that just from her. So and, and just understand it. That's also how, you know, Toby Emmerich and Courtney Blaney and Warner Brothers talk about Ryan. So, so to think about an individual, right, who is beloved by, you know, uh, an entity like Warner Brothers and, and revolutionaries. You know what I'm saying? Yes. That's, yeah. that's a real cat. Yes. That's a real yes. motherfucker. You know what I'm saying? So like, Say that. That's, <laughs> so, Say so, that. So, 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 you know, when you talk about what he brought to the, to the movie, that's the glue. And, and I don't know anybody else in the world who occupies that space, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, so, yes. And, and, you know, in regards to allyship, white allyship, to answer the other part of your question, you know, I think it's, it's less, it's less so much a, a, a in, in specifically, I think you're talking about the role of Agent Mitchell in the film. Correct. I'm really looking more at this idea of decency. Like, I remember the last four years, everyone talking about how, you know, the uh, the American presidency needed to be replaced with the decency, whatever happened to decency, decency. And decency will, you know, shoot a 21-year-old in the head and name try to name a, a city block after him, you know, a, a couple years later. Like, decency is, is, I think, one of the most toxic things about this country, this idea of, you know, performative allyship. And I feel like you look at a character like Agent Mitchell, and for me, like the reason to craft that character in an interesting way and make him complex was to really, you know, in some ways indict this idea of white centrism as mm. a version of allyship or decency as a version of allyship. And it was, a, you know, we got a real clue when we discovered that he, you know, prosecuted the or, or you know, investigated the murders of the Freedom Riders in Mississippi. And then only several years later was looking to dismantle the Illinois chapter. That was really like revelatory for us because it was like, wow, you know, this guy really in his mind thought he was doing the right thing. This guy in his mind thought that the Panthers and the Klan were one and the same, you know. And so you start thinking about a character like that and a person like that. And you, you start to think about, well, let's show this guy who... It's almost like I, I, I wanted to kind of take a look at someone who, you know, could kind of present himself to this black 17 year old as this father figure, someone he should admire, but simultaneously be completely manipulating him with the trappings of, you know, capitalism, wealth and all these things. So that ultimately, you know, when he makes this turn and he, and he you know, kind of twists the knife at the end you are kind of aligned with O'Neill in a sense where you've been watching this guy and he's been giving you clues about who he is. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? He's been telling you throughout, like first he tells you the Panthers and the Klan are one and the same. It's funny to watch that scene with a white audience and a black audience because the black audience was watching that scene. They're like, 
yo, what the fuck is this guy talking about? Whereas mm-hmm. a white audience watches that scene and it washes over them many times. It, they don't it, even or, notice or they, anything. Yeah, or they or they think back to themselves, which is which would be my last question. I want you to finish your answer though, because they think back to themselves and they're like, oh, BLM and the Klan are, are the same thing. Black it's lives. A, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's <laughs> it's the same. It's the same. You know, kind of ideology at play. But I think a lot of times it just like kind of washes over them. You know, I've I've observed this because that was a character that you know a lot of you know some of my white collaborators were, were like, I'm a little confused like with this character, like he seems like a decent guy and the keyword being decent, you know what I'm saying? And, and so, you know, you, you see him do that and he's giving you clues. He's giving you clues in the sense of, you know, when he meets with Hoover and Hoover says to him, you know, what would you do when your daughter brings home a Negro? He doesn't say, he, he says she won't, <laughs> you know, like people like he's uncomfortable in that situation. I'm like, you're missing the part where he said she won't, <laughs> you know, like it's just like a, not a, a non-starter. You know, and so you get clues as to who this guy is, you know, I think throughout the process. And then at the end, when he truly reveals who he is, it's not so much that you haven't seen who he was before, but you just weren't a lot of times. I think you weren't really paying attention. You know, I think, too, that um, O'Neill himself, he speaks on it on in the eyes on the prize clip that show. He looked to uh, Mitchell as a father figure. Father figure, yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. that, that's the reality. He looked to him as father figure. So I have to quote Chairman Fred Hampton Jr., who says, after the hunter kills the gorilla tribe, the baby gorilla that's fed the milk, his first milk by the hunter, is different than the one that's nursed by its mother. So you had a person, you have people now, even some rappers who they they hate black people, but a white police, you know, gave them a break. So a white police is Jesus. You know what I'm saying? So we have to look at this and how racism, how capitalism is a way white people can do the same thing that uh, black people do. And but it's not a crime. You know what I'm saying? They're not attacked by a federal government. They're not colonized the way black people are in this country. Mother Cool, while I have you here, I'll be remiss. My last question, because I I know we got to go and and do other things with our day. I'm so grateful just for the knowledge that you both shared. Shaka's one of the greatest artists of our generation now, having put that piece of work out. Mother Cool, you are just a, a strong black woman. It's been the backbone of our community and still are the backbone. So what are your words of wisdom for the next generation of Black activists and movement stakeholders who are on the front lines now? First of all, quit trying to compare every movement that comes up every other week, funded or unfunded, to the Black Panther Party. The Black <laughs> Panther Party no longer exists. It was intellectually, ideologically, the victor in the battle against uh, capitalism in U.S. superiorly. One of the hearts and minds of the people but lost a military assault that this government put in place. So all these different groups that pop up are not the Black Panther Party. The only organization that's carrying on this work, fighting to defend the legacy of the Black Panther Party and doing the work is the Black Panther Party clubs. And I'm not just saying it because Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. heads it, but they have not just jumped out there, but they have been out there for years so many years, and I'm proud and honored to be on that advisory board. Everybody is not going to be a revolutionary, but there's some contribution you can make in your own uh, fight for freedom and liberation. If it's nothing more than making copies of a flyer, 
You know what I'm saying? And let me say again, the Rainbow Coalition, I didn't say it on this piece, but the Rainbow Coalition, people want to make it with all these different races and everything getting together. The Black Panther Party was recognized as a vanguard of the liberation struggle here in the United States of America, all around the world. So those groups that participated in the Rainbow Coalition, they didn't all come together and have a big beating and vote on everything. They recognized the leadership of the Black Panther Party, and they united on certain points. Everybody agreed that children could not learn on empty stomach, and they should be able to be fed before they go to school. Thus, the mm-hmm. breakfast free breakfast program. Thus, the state free breakfast free lunch programs. So, don't think that all everybody got together and started singing "Kumbaya" back in the '60s. That was not the case. Read more, listen more, and be critical in your analysis of what the Black Panther Party was, and check out the Black Panther Party Cubs and save, uh, restore, and maintain the Hampton House. Thank you both for your time. That's all I can say. Thank you for your contributions. One love, peace, and y'all have a very blessed day. Thank you. You You as well. Thank you. Before I let you go, I wanted to talk about this game-changing child tax credit that was in the American Rescue Plan that Biden signed into law last week. In case you missed it, as part of the American Rescue Plan, the Biden-Harris administration and congressional Democrats included a significantly expanded child tax credit as a part of their relief package where eligible low- and middle-income families with children will receive a yearly total of $3,000 per child aged 6 to 17 and a $3,600 tax credit per child under the age of 6. Because the tax credit is refundable, Listen to this. What this would look like for eligible families would be a monthly check starting in July where the average family of three with three qualifying children ages 10, 5, and 3 could receive a monthly payment in the neighborhood of $850 every month for a year. That's why this has the potential to cut child poverty in half. Imagine what that does for the average working parent. Monthly support for emergencies that arise. And a lot of folks can avoid things like payday loans and title loans to help make ends meet. Folks may be able to avoid having to take on an additional job to make ends meet and spend more time with their children. The only problem, though, this only lasts for a year. So at an end in 2022, Democrats need to make this tax credit permanent to give working families the support they need and to give our children the economic and emotional security that comes from parents that have financial support when they need to make ends meet. Don't look now, but the progressive champions that you were looking for, maybe Joe Biden and Kamala Harris through the American Rescue Plan. You all didn't have cutting child poverty in half on your Biden-Harris bingo cards, but it's there now. Let's finish this job and make this tax cut permanent. And that's that on that. We'll see you guys on Thursday. Have a great week. Thank you.